Amen. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Malachi. Malachi chapter 2. Um, it's been great having you in for this series next uh, Sunday. Uh, you really, uh, for those of you who came from another adult Bible class, uh, you can go back to your Bible class. And if you don't have an adult Bible class and you're a young married, uh, you're welcome to come uh, in here for uh, our class. Uh, Brother Phil Salmon's going to be teaching in here next week. Uh, I'm going to be fishing in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And then uh, the week after that, we'll start uh, a new series uh, in our adult class. And uh, I, everything that's good in life, and particularly our spiritual life, it's built line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And, and that's why God, through every service, in some way, adds a line, uh, a precept, uh, a little to what was there. And so uh, I would really just encourage you, if you don't already do so, to make Sunday school a, a regular uh, habit uh, for you. Uh, you do, should have a blank, blank piece of paper today. Obviously, since it's our last week, you can't uh, turn in a question, uh, but I would uh, like honest feedback uh, on the class if you feel like there's something that uh, we didn't cover or covered inadequately, uh, list it. If there's some way you feel like it could be handled better, uh, put it down. Uh, I'm interested in, in, in your feedback, uh, honest feedback, and you get to turn it in without your name. So, you know, whatever you put in is good. Um, last week I did ask uh, on those questions um, if you wanted to spend our last week with me uh, answering questions you had already turned in or if you wanted me to spend a week teaching on divorce. And uh, overwhelmingly, uh, you asked for me to teach on divorce. Um, you said, well, that's a pretty ironic um, subject in a marriage class. Uh, not so much uh, because I don't think we really understand uh, what the scriptures teach and don't teach. I, I also think that uh, if your marriage is great, uh, listen, there are going to be people in the circle of your life who are going to be struggling with this. And the more you know about what God has said, the better you'll be able to help them. And so it is really applicable uh, to us in here today. And, you know, I, I, I think oftentimes um, people who are married don't highly value the pain of divorce. And when you don't highly value the pain of something, then you don't fight against it like you might. And, um, and, and so if any measure of that, if I can uh, communicate that to you to cause you uh, when your life is going through weak moments, listen, every marriage uh, has high and low points. Every marriage. And uh, if, if I can keep you motivated... <laughs> in those low points to, to make the effort to stay together, uh, this lesson will be a, a success. Um, I did uh, have a couple of questions that sort of keep appearing that uh, I wanted to cover uh, today just real briefly. Uh, this one has come up several times. How important is it for couples to pray together? Uh, I think that depends on the couple. Uh, I think that Prayer, first and foremost, is talking to God. 
And in a lot of marriage books you read, they talk about the essential nature of praying together. And listen, uh, I, Sharon and I pray together when stuff especially is going wrong. Um, but I don't believe it's that essential. When you read in marriage books about it, they always talk about the value of you hearing your spouse pray. And no one prays the same way when someone is listening. No one. If your prayer to God is always something that your husband or wife can hear, you're not being honest enough with God. And so while I do... You know, I do think you should pray together at times. And some couples, you know, it's a vital part of their marriage. Great, go for it. Uh, uh, you know, just be sure you have private prayer time to God. And, and don't let anybody tell you that if you don't handle your marriage exactly like they handle their marriage, that your marriage isn't good. I get sick of that stuff. Um, and the last one, how do couples get back into wanting to do things together? Um, at the root of this question is a false idea. Proverbs say, he that trusteth in his heart is a fool. I mean, that is such a powerful statement. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. And so you don't ever want to trust what you want to do. Um, you want to just decide that, wow, the times you need to make effort most to be together on purpose is the times you feel least like doing it. And, and, and so Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so if you want to treasure your marriage, decide to treasure your marriage and your heart will go to your marriage. Uh, and so when you don't want to do things together outside of the house, don't trust your heart. Know that you're supposed to treasure your marriage and purposely go do something together and you'll find your heart. You, you don't trust your heart uh, on these kinds of things. L listen, uh, people, that's the, literally some of the worst advice that anyone ever gives another human being is follow your heart. I mean, it's literally some of the worst possible advice you could hear or you could give. And I hear Christian, Christian people saying that all the time. I mean, duh. You know, your heart and mind is absolutely corrupt. And so you need to do what you know pleases Christ, and your heart will eventually get on it. And uh, I did want to cover those. Swing and a miss. Um, because, again, they keep uh, popping up before we get into today's lesson. Um, divorce was a hot-button topic in Jesus' day. Uh, it's no surprise it's a hot-button topic today. People haven't changed. I hope you've come to recognize one of the reasons the Bible is so applicable is that the people that came out of Egypt holding a clay pot are really no different than the people in America holding an iPhone. People have always been people, and the Bible always applies because of that. Uh, I'm told uh, that about 50% of all U.S. children will witness their parents' divorce during their childhood. Uh, I'm told the divorce rate is between 41 and 50%. Uh, I'm told that 43% of American children are living without their father present. And I'm also told that in the church in general, the divorce rate is not any different from the world. Now, I have seen other data 
where it looks at churches like this one and people who are very committed to that church and ministry in Christ. And from what I understand, that divorce rate is more in the 10 to 15% rate, but it gets in there too. Um, according to uh, atrochester.org, uh, between 2017-2021, the share of families headed by single parents was 76%. Excuse me, among African American families, 59% in Hispanic families, 39% in white families, and 31% in Asian families. Uh, I'm also told that the single most common factor of males in prison is not race or education. It's the fact that they come from a fatherless home. Uh, listen, please don't misunderstand me. Thank God for single parents who live godly lives, who do the best they can under difficult circumstances. There are truly some incredibly wonderful single parents. There really are. But God's preference, if it's at all possible, is for two parents who love Christ, love one another, and try to raise their kids right. And so keeping our marriage together and healthy, it's good for our children as well as ourselves. As we begin to think about it, I thought, where did you get your view of divorce? Remarriage. Did you get it from the Bible? Did you get it from personal experience? Did you get it from our culture? Did you get it from church tradition? Uh... Listen, we could spend weeks on this, and so uh, for basically, I've got 30 minutes from this point forward. I want to just take a few moments and 30 minutes, and as best as you can, in that sort of a summary manner, uh, talk about what the Scriptures teach about divorce. Listen, this is a tough subject. Uh, it's a tough subject. People in here and people all over this church have been through a divorce. Uh, many of you, uh, your parents were divorced. And many of you, your siblings are divorced. And some of you, your children are... are listen, th this uh, catches everybody. And it's so important that we have a biblical and a balanced view about this so we can better protect our own home and so that we can better help the people around us. You should be in your Bible in Malachi uh, chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Let me take a sip of this once. My voice is still not fully recovered from Nicaragua, but mostly. Malachi chapter 2, verse 11. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Uh, the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. The master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have you done again, uh, covering the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping, with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Yet you say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant, and did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. 
For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you deal not treacherously. Here's the first thing when we think about divorce. Number one, God hates divorce. By the way, God hates divorce is a very different statement than God hateth those that are divorced. That, that is an inaccurate statement. It says in verse 16, uh, says, The God of Israel saith that he hateth putting away. Now, Malachi wrote in a day when Israel was very cold spiritually. And through this book, there are several ways God tries to correct and help his people. Uh, un unfortunately, very few people are open to correction. Uh, we expect our kids to be open to correction. And if you know anything about Proverbs, you know that being open to correction is a sign of wisdom. And you know that being open to correction is a sign of humility. But despite us knowing that, very few adults are open to correction because very few are wise and humble. Uh, and God, through Malachi here, he makes several accusations uh, against Israel and he explains himself. In verse 11, uh, Judah dealt treacherously and committed an abomination. Uh, how did they do that? In verse 11, it says, Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Um, God was not happy with them for marrying people who led them into idolatry. Um, marrying someone didn't share their faith. And the second reason uh, that he was not happy with them is that they mocked the repentance and mercy of God in verse 13. He says, This have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. In other words, you come and, and you say you're sorry and you cry, and then you go back out and you do the same thing. And you come back and you say you're sorry and you cry. He said, I'm done. I'm not accepting your sacrifices anymore because you don't really intend to change anything. Uh, and God was fed up with that. Uh, Judah, of course, denied that. And so God's going to point out another way that they dealt treacherously in verse uh, number 14. He says, yet ye say, wherefore? In other words, God, where do we deal treacherously? And here God's going to answer his own uh, rhetorical question. Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Um, basically, God says, not only did you deal treacherously and not truly being repentant, and I'm fed up with your offerings, he said, I don't like the way you've handled your wife, the wife of your youth, the wife you married when you were young and she was young. And God then makes that summary statement that I pointed out before in verse 16. He says that the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. God hates divorce. Again, God does not hate those who are divorced. God hates divorce. Uh, and any, anybody who knows anything about God knows that if God says that he hates something, that he hates it because of the pain that it causes those who end up in, involved in it. In fact, he gives us several reasons here why he would hate divorce. Notice it inflicts one of the deepest wounds against thy companion in verse 14. And it says, Wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion. Uh, and notice the second reason, uh, the wife of thy covenant. It deeply wounds someone who is supposed to be your companion. It breaks one of the greatest promises and commitments you can have. She is the wife of thy covenant. 
But notice also he hates it because it hurts children and grandparents and not just spouses. Marriage helps seek a godly seed in verse 15. And yet did he not make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit and wherefore one? Why did God make them one? He answers this question. That he might seek a godly seed. Divorce hurts children. Divorce violates God's original attention for married. And that's verse 15. He said, did not he make one? That was his intention. Uh, divorce, God hates it because it brings out the worst in people. Verse 15, he says, therefore, take heed to your spirit. And again, if you've been through a divorce or know anybody who has been as deeply hurt as divorce hurts everyone involved, you understand why he warns us to guard our attitude, guard what's inside us. And quite frankly, he reminds us that divorce brings out the worst in most people who go, who are involved in it. Verse 15, that's where he says, therefore take heed to your spirit, let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Uh, listen, anybody who's gone through divorce, been close to somebody who's been divorced, you, you say, well, you know what? I, I've lived all that. Uh, I've seen all that. And in addition to what he names here, uh, we also learned that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. And so uh, divorce ruins that picture. And since God is the author of marriage and God loves marriage, please hear me. Satan is the enemy of marriage. Satan hates God. Satan really doesn't hate us so much for us. He hates us because God loves us. Satan hates marriage because God loves marriage. I mean, first and foremost, Satan is not our enemy, though he is our enemy. First and foremost, Satan is the enemy of God. His existence is completely dedicated to destroying anything and anyone God loves. Satan is interested in destroying your marriage. Did you hear me? That's very personal. He knows divorce hurts God. He knows divorce hurts you. He knows divorce hurts your children. He knows divorce hurts your parents. And he, we can't even relate to the kind of an attitude that, a, that our arch spiritual enemy has when I say he wants to destroy and bring pain and regret in your life. And if we really let that sink in, we would stop being so careless and casual about how we handle our marriages. Your marriage and mine, it has a target on its back. God hates divorce. Matthew chapter 19. Again, God hating divorce is not, God hates divorced people. God loves divorced people. God loves married people. God loves people because God is love. God loves faithful people. God loves unfaithful people. God is love. Not only, number one, does God hate divorce, here's number two, uh, God's original plan for marriage was that there would be no divorce. That's God's original plan. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees came also unto him, that's Jesus, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, have you not read? By the way, if that phrase is not underlined in your Bible, it should be. 
On seven different, uh, five different occasions, recorded seven times in the Bible, Jesus said that, have you not read? He expected the Jewish people to have read the Bible. He expected that. And so Jesus, though he had his own authority, and he could have uh, said, but I say unto you, with his own authority, what he's going to do is he's going to answer their question with an authority that all of us have. He's going to answer their question with the written word of God. Verse 4, said that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, wherefore there are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And I've got that phrase underlined in my Bible too. But what is marriage first and foremost? It is a, a man and a woman God has joined. Jesus makes sure they understand God's original intention was that since God joined you in marriage, man is not supposed to break that. Keep your hand there. Go back to Deuteronomy 24. See, the, at root of the Pharisees' question was a religious question of the day, which was, what's a good reason to get rid of your wife? And part of the Pharisees believed that um, pretty much anything to you was a good reason. She burned the biscuits. If you're mad at her from last week, you can get rid of her. And the other part of the Pharisees said, no, it takes something more than that. And understand, when Jesus settles their uh, dispute in a, in a moment, he's not going to take either side. He's going to go back to the original intention because he is the author of Scripture. He is the author of marriage. And he's going to go back to that. But here's the dispute among the Pharisees in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It says, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. By the way, before we go on, notice, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, and notice then he says, then let him write. He doesn't command him to write. He allows him to write. The dispute among the Pharisees is what did it mean for her to have some uncleanness in there? Was it any small thing? Uh, she burnt the biscuits, didn't pick up after the kids, whatever. Or was it something a little more serious? Uh, before we go on and hear Jesus' answer, uh, verse 2 has a lot to do with this issue as well. Verse 2. Uh, and when she's departed, so if her husband decides to give her a bill of divorce, when she's departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Uh, by the way, I've got that phrase underlined in my Bible. I've got the word let uh, underlined in verse 1. I've got the word may in verse 2 underlined go and be another man's wife. In other words, if he lets her go, she's not still his wife. Even in the, under the Mosaic Law. Listen, under the Mosaic Law, which everybody says, wow, man, that's tough, that's tight, that's harsh. God allowed for some uncleanness for divorce and for remarriage. By the way, I don't care what you've learned in the past. That's what the Bible says. It's very clear. Go back to Matthew 19. And so, 
Jesus is going to quote the Bible to them and, as I said earlier, uh, tells them that our Creator really never intended divorce to occur at all. Uh, what God hath joined, let not man put asunder. Uh, and then Jesus concludes in verse 6, permanence. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Uh, basic application is pretty simple. We're supposed to do everything we can within the bounds of what is right to keep our marriage together. We should do everything we can within the bounds of what is right to keep our marriage together and to keep it healthy. I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to make it twice. This is a really key statement. There's a big difference in doing everything you can to work it out and looking for a reason to get out. There's a big difference in doing everything you can to work it out and looking for a reason to get out. The average person who's trying to answer this question, they're looking for a reason to get out. And that is literally the opposite of our Creator's intention. Our Creator's intention is that we should be looking for what we need to do to work it out instead of for a reason to get out. Uh, I've said this multiple times in here. Every marriage in which God is involved, regardless of what has happened, can not only be worked out, but it also can become healthy and good when God is involved. You've got to get God involved, and you've got to do what God says to do to have a healthy relationship. So as we think, uh, seek this biblical perspective on divorce, first, God hates divorce. Secondly, God intended marriage to be permanent. Uh, <coughs> thirdly, number three, God permitted divorce under a couple of circumstances. Verses seven through nine. Uh, they say unto him, that's the Pharisees, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? By the way, is, did Moses command that or did he allow it? Moses did not command it. He allowed it. Uh, verse 8, He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Do you notice how Jesus puts in the biblical word? Suffered means allowed. Moses allowed that. And Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, he knew not only what Moses wrote, but because he was the author of Scripture, he knew why Moses wrote it. And Moses wrote it because of the hardness of the hearts of people. By the way, if people had hard hearts in Moses' day, after they watched all God's deliverance from uh, Egypt and watched God uh, put the walls up and cross the Red Sea and every day went out and ate manna and every day could look out and see the pillar of cloud over the tabernacle and every night see the pillar of fire over it. Listen, if they had hard hearts, I'd say probably we can get a hard heart today too. God permitted it because of the hardness of their hearts. Verse 9. Jesus, I say unto you, so now he's using his own authority. He is going to define what some uncleanness that's undefined in Deuteronomy is. But I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. Whosoever marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. So Jesus now gives the first reason for God not being angry at divorce is fornication. Fornication is some kind of a sexual sin. Um, adultery is a kind of fornication. Uh, 
<laughs> what Jesus taught, his disciples, I mean, their mouth was open. Verse 10. His disciples say unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it's, it's not good to marry. The, the apostles, his disciples said, listen, if that's how tight this is in getting out of this, it's good not to marry. Uh, by the way, were they thinking well at that time? No. No, they were not. Uh, again, what you see is a lot of disrespect for women amongst the Pharisees and the Jews and his disciples. And what you see Jesus doing is not only correcting the record, but also having this level of respect for the women who are involved. And I, I get really frosted when, when people talk about Jesus or Paul being chauvinist, when, when Jesus did all kinds of things uh, through women and with women uh, that were just unacceptable at that time. And here he's taken up for the woman, and, and the disciples said, well, if it's that time, we shouldn't marry. Uh, notice what Jesus says in verse 11. Uh, all men cannot receive this saying, save to they to whom it is given. Uh, in other words, most men are designed to marry. Verse 12, for there are some eunuchs which are born, uh, so born from their mother's womb. Uh, there are, in other words, some don't marry because they were just born not to marry. There are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. <laughs> Kings uh, and people uh, didn't want men with testosterone, God and their money, and so they uh, castrated them. Uh, and there be some which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. In other words, some people, like the apostle Paul, for the Christ's sake and his ministry's sake, decided not to be married. But notice how Jesus concludes in verse 12. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. In other words, God intended most people to be married. Not all, most. Uh, there are a few who are able to receive. You're not supposed to marry, but most are, are, are not like that. Um, God permitted divorce in a couple of circumstances. Listen, as long as there has been marriage, uh, because of man's sinful nature, there have been problems in marriage. You don't have problems in your marriage because you, you are unique among married people. You have problems in your marriage because you have two people with a fallen nature living in a broken world, uh, and we all bring whatever baggage of our past uh, into every marriage. That's why you have problems in your marriage. It's, God has a plan to help you, though. Satan has always been the enemy of marriage. And um, Jesus' view is pretty clear. And why? Uh, they're basically, that is the most obvious of the two reasons that the Scriptures give that allow for divorce. Uh, don't think for a minute that God under Mosaic law allowed divorce because of the hardness of his hearts, of human hearts. And today, living under grace with the full knowledge of Christ and a completed New Testament, that God doesn't have times when he allows for divorce today. You say, Brother Wally, why doesn't God give more reasons? Uh, we'll go over the second one in just a moment. I don't know. I'll give you my opinion. Uh, number one, I think it's because God expects us to take our marriage vow very seriously. I, I think if he gave us ten reasons, uh, everybody would be looking for shades of those ten reasons to get out. And I don't think God wants us to be looking for a reason to get out. I think God wants us to be looking for a reason to work it out. 
The second reason I personally think why God only get two is uh, he wants you to stay married. He wants you to respect that covenant. He, he wants you, even though you don't understand, to avoid the pain that will inevitably be down the road for you and your children if you don't do everything you can to work it out. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll find the second reason. 1 Corinthians 7. I said, first, God hates divorce. <laughs> I said, secondly, um, God intended permanence in marriage. I said, thirdly, God does give us a couple of reasons where he allows divorce. Um, here's the second reason in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning verse 10. said, and unto the unmarried, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Let not the husband put away his wife. Now notice in verse 10, this is the teaching of the Lord. This is what Christ taught. Verse 12, he said, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. And so now uh, he's going to give us new revelation. He could do that as an apostle. No preacher today has the right to do this. No, nobody has the right to do this. He had the right to do this as an apostle. And as writing uh, inspired scripture, verse 12, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. He says, if any brother or hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. By the way, before we go on, do you see what he's saying? He, he says if there's even one believer in the home, it sanctifies the children. It helps every unsaved spouse to have a believer in the house. It helps every child to have one parent who's a believer. By the way, there's a lot of families that have none. And so he says, listen, if you are married to an unbeliever, he said, don't, don't leave them. Verse 15, he said, but if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, for God hath called us to peace. So there's a second reason right there, abandonment. Abandonment. Um, the unbelieving that leaves. Verse 16, For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? How knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. And this is specifically, according to verse 17, applied to adults who get saved, and they have an unbelieving spouse. That's why it says, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. And the early church was not Paul going around doing children's ministry. I'm sure they did ministry to children. It's just not recorded. It was a ministry to adults. And it would be very common where the husband or the wife was reached and the spouse was not. And he's given them instruction. He says, don't leave. The fact that you have faith and that you're following Christ, it sanctifies your husband, it sanctifies your children. But if they leave you, you're not in bondage. Um, <laughs> abandonment. I don't know why other things aren't listed. Uh, I will say this, practically speaking... If you are having really bad problems or you're in danger, I mean, I've on several occasions said, you know, listen, 
you guys need to separate to work things out. It's a very different for a temporary separation for your safety or to work things out and to leave. In practical terms, when you separate to work things out genuinely, I mean, what happens most of the time is that uh, that person will not want to work it, work it out and they will abandon you. What happens, practically speaking, most of the time is that person will not want to work things out and they will start another relationship. And so those two reasons that are given, in practical terms, they really actually come back into play because believers are only supposed to marry believers. Look at verse 39 of the same chapter. It says, A wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. By the way, you ought to underline or or highlight that statement. That's a great doctrinal statement. Spouses should be looking for ways to stay together and build a healthy relationship, not for reasons to to leave. The Bible does not say those are the only two reasons. Excuse me, those are the only two were given. I mean, I have people ask me all the time, what does fornication mean? You know, and what about emotional abandonment? And I always tell them the same thing. Are you looking to work it out? Are you looking to stay? And if you're looking to work it out, then you have the right attitude. And if you're looking for reason to leave, you have the wrong attitude. Which really gets us to the last thing, number four. God has a plan for those who are divorced. That's true whether it's you in your past. That's true whether it's you in the future. I mean, nobody walks down a marriage. 99% of people walk down a marriage aisle. They love that person. They believe it's going to work out. Uh, no one plans on this. But if God had a plan under the Mosaic Law for those who are hard in their heart and their marriage failed... He has one today. And by the way, I believe that's true for the person we would call the victim. And that's also true for the person we would call the cause. I do believe God has higher expectations for you and I living under grace with the full knowledge of Christ in the New Testament. I do not believe a person continues in adultery if they remarry. I do not believe that. So why don't you believe that? Because when Jesus talked to the woman in Samaria, he said, thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast is not thy husband. Uh, It wasn't one husband and five lovers. You say, how does that work? I don't know. I just, based on that, I do not believe that a person continues in adultery if they remarry. Uh, The Holy Spirit observes that Elkanah had two wives, not one wife and a concubine, I don't know. Let you take a look at Solomon. Had, um, was it 700 wives and 300 concubines? Is that right? Or is the other way around? I mean, what's the difference in wife 640 and concubine 87? I mean, think about that. I mean, what a selfish, evil way to conduct your life. But God still called them 700 wives. I do not believe Christ intended for divorced people to not have potential to have a happy second marriage. I do not believe that. I do believe it's preferable once you're divorced to not remarry, according to what Christ said. 
But again, in practical terms, what Christ taught us is basically, if you choose not to marry and your ex-spouse marries, then you're free to marry. In practical terms. Um, I also believe this. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 8, and I'm almost out of time. Paul here says, I say therefore to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. And that's not burn in hell, that's burn with lust. Uh, listen, one of the reasons God gave marriage is so that neither man or woman would burn in lust towards someone who's not their spouse. I do not believe that divorced people can't do significant things for Christ. I don't believe that. Now, I do believe that the positions of pastor and deacon should be reserved for people who are not divorced. But you could debate that if someone is divorced for a biblical, one of those two biblical reasons. Uh, we've had people here on multiple occasions who are leaders who are going through a divorce. I privately, I sit down with them, not harshly. I would ju just gently say, hey, listen, you're going through a tough time. Well, why don't you take a break from your leadership position for a while, and when everything settles down, we'll get you back. So why do you do that? Listen, somebody who's going through this, I mean, they're hurting. At some of the deepest levels you can as a human being, when, when your marriage fails, you, you're betrayed at the most basic level of who you are as a person. And uh, in those times, you know, when that's going on, you, you're, you're not really ready to give out. You need to get emotionally and spiritually healthy again. Um, the church and the people of God ought to be a place that has open arms to sinners of all sorts. Amen? I'm out of time. I got all kinds of stuff to say, but I'm done. Um, put down some sort of comment on our class, um, ways you think it might be handled better. Uh, so next time, don't teach on divorce. Uh, wh whatever you feel like, hey, your feelings and thoughts are your feelings and thoughts. Uh, if I couldn't take them, um, you know, I wouldn't ask for them. And if you come tonight and I'm in a fetal position sucking my thumb in the back of the auditorium, just know that I thought I could take it, but I couldn't. Uh, God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you.